Amen. Thank you. All right. So we'll just look at something that we had talked about. We had a little uh, the cookout at uh, at the the meal for Michelle's birthday, and then the cookout afterward. Little devotionals, and I did one on faith, and and we, I was in Hebrew, so I thought I'd expand it a little bit more uh, for us. So. He, the question in Hebrews, there's two basic questions we saw, right, through our study in Hebrews. One of the main questions was, um, is this going? Yes. Make a church recording. The main question was, uh, why, for the, for, the Jew, for the Jewish believers not to turn back to the Old Covenant, remember? The Old Covenant laws. Not to turn back. And by doing this, how to do this, the writer was proving overwhelmingly who Christ was and how Christ was superior to all these different things. You remember that? Angels, Moses, all these things. So the two questions we want to ask then as we review today is the two questions that we could ask or could have been asked in Hebrews is this. Who was Jesus, right, to them? And secondly, who were they? That's the question the writer of Hebrews was asking. So who are you, brothers and sisters? Are you... His. Who are you? And so this question is asked, in a way, uh, the topic today is saving faith. Because that's what Hebrews is about. Are you saved? Are you? Do you believe this in this Jesus? Do you believe he's superior? Are you going to go back to that? Are you even saved? So we ask that ourselves today. Um, if you go, and, and there's many questions where people confuse it with passages saying we can lose our salvation, which are really referring to questioning are you even saved do you have saving faith so at the end of chapter 10 in hebrews chapter 10 the writer talks about uh, verse 32 the beginning of their salvation their supposed salvation their suffering and he says in verse 35 of hebrews 10 so do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded you need to persevere when you've done the will of god you receive what he's promised and just a little while he was coming will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Then he says in verse 39, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So he's not questioning we're going to lose our salvation. He's saying All right, God does not take pleasure in those who have no faith. We're not those who are destroyed and had not faith, but we have saving faith. That's what he's asking. So then in chapter 11, and I remember there's no chapter in the original, he describes what faith not is, but what faith does and how faith is proven and shows itself. Because our English version says in chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is, but it should really say faith does. This is what faith is doing and has done in you. Saving faith, a power outside of yourself. So we're really looking at something very fantastic, theologically uh, deep here. <laughs> faith is the confidence, or faith does give confidence, and what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I love that verse, one of my favorite verses. What does that mean? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's not what it appears to be on the very surface, like almost like we have to believe something that doesn't exist. We have, to, we have to believe in this thing we can't see. No, it's not saying that at all. It's actually saying the opposite. It's saying saving faith has made it more real than the ground you're standing on. That's what it's really implying. 
It says here, and faith is the confidence. The word confidence there means a stable foundation. It's, it's, it's real. It's firm. It's like standing on cement. Faith is the stability, or faith does give you stability. Saving faith has given you stability in what you hope for, and assurance isn't, isn't to guess, it's proof. The word there for assurance means proof, without question. It's not even saying evidence. It's saying proof, unquestioned is what it's saying. Faith does give us a, a stability and the, the foundation and what we hope for, and saving faith gives us proof about what we do not see. And again, we would say, do we have to believe in something we can't see? Like it takes blind faith. No, it's not saying that. The word there, or the phrase, we do not see, actually means this. It means... To see something physical with spiritual results. So when it says we do not see, it's not saying, gee, we've got to believe in something we can't even see. Like we're just fools. We're just blind faith, like the world accuses us of. The scripture saying here is that we have proof through saving faith and through the indwelling Holy Spirit of things that we see now that we used to not be able to see. The world cannot see a beaver, for instance, a beaver dam, right? Mm -hmm. And an unbeliever sees a beaver dam and says, what an ugly pile of sticks and whatnot. The believer looks at the beaver dam. Now, because of saving faith, we see the unseen. We see what the world cannot see. It's exposed to us now. We are, the veil is taken away. So now we see a beaver. We say, how fantastic is the creation of God, what God has done, how these animals instinctively through God's creation are given like a computer code they know just what to do. Every bird makes a different nest perfectly. We used to have Phoebe's. Phoebe has a Phoebe nest. Five little eggs every year. Do, do, do. It's done. God designs things. Randy? Right. So it, some call it natural revelation. But the world um, does not see. Now through saving faith, we see spiritual truths through physical realities. We see spiritual truths now. And like, like they say, most Christians, when they're newly saved, what happens to them? We see nature differently, right? Sunsets are beautiful. Mornings are gorgeous. The nature just comes alive because the veil is taken away that was hidden. I had an article fascinating from MIT. Have you ever heard of the Bombardier Beetle? Yeah. Okay, fascinating. MIT did a study studying and you know the military gets a lot of its new secrets from nature they study things that happen in the natural world which we didn't create god created flight was around long before men obviously we learn how to fly through natural things we learn uh, uh how to make things through nature the bombardier beetle is is amazing it's a half inch creature and it says researchers at mit have studied it and trying to understand how it works. Imagine that studying a beetle, and it's beyond their range of understanding. They're just starting to grasp it, but this is all by chance. They, it says how they produce a noxious spray while avoiding any damage to themselves. The conundrum has been solved thanks by research by a team of MIT, Uni, University of Arizona, Brookhaven National Laboratory. Uh, the defensive mechanism is highly effective. It says the liquid these beetles eject is called benzoquinone, which is in other insects as well. But the difference with the bombardier beetle, it's unique in its ability to superheat liquid and expel it, an intense pulsating jet. So what the beetle has 
is that its abdomen, you know, the head of a beetle and the body of a beetle, in the abdomen or the bottom section is two chambers. <laughs> this all evolved. Two chambers, and one chamber has a liquid, another one has a what they call a precursor, which they're separated when they come together through God's magical supernatural way, they create a extreme heat, they combine synthesize and makes a jet spray that comes out and either kills or numbs its uh, its enemy or kills its prey, whatever it is. But the beetle itself is not hurt, and it all happens within millionths of a second. It's similar to like a bomb with gunpowder, which the, the gunpowder is safe and, and innocuous without the, the fire or the spark. But when the spark hits it, it becomes like a nuclear bomb is innocent until it, the fuse, which is another bomb, which blows up and then creates heat of a million or more degrees, which then creates the atomic explosion in, the, um, in all, all the atoms uh, exploding out. So this beetle, they understand, it, the chemical has not been understood. It was only observed. So they did x-rays. They studied it. And it says that the chamber holding the precursor liquid and explosion take place passively and increase in pressure expands the membrane, closing the valve. They, uh, they just studied it so much that they finally come to understand how it works. And this is all, we now look at that and say, wow, what God has done through a little beetle. Mark? And I think I read about that, the idea was that how did this thing evolve? Right, you right. Can't have, you can't have these things uh, uh, built in stages. Right. It has to all be there at once. Right. Right. Well, I, I like to say, the whole, the whole undoing of, of evolution is its premise, that things take forever. Well, if it took forever, if it took hundreds of millions of years, how could a polar bear who, you know, you look at a polar bear, their, their hair is not here. It's a tube. They're tubes. A, a, pair, a, a polar bear's skin is black underneath. Why? To absorb sun, right? So it has tubes. These tubes make insulation. They're not just a hair like we have. They're tubes. A polar bear wouldn't have survived. It couldn't have survived. The cold, it would have been, I'm waiting 50 more million years and I'll be okay. <laughs> Evolution undoes itself by its premise. If everything took that long, nothing would have survived the elements. It would have died. It would have ended. Um, so we go on and we see then that uh, in verse 3, he, back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command. The word there is rhema for spoken word. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Uh, even even the, the scientists who believe in the Big Bang all believe that something had to exist for the Big Bang to occur. There had to be a matter, some type of, uh, of a mass or energy. Some, some even teach that a small piece of matter was so condensed before the Big Bang that it weighed 40 billion tons or, or whatever it is and exploded and then creates the universe. The Bible teaches, though, that there was nothing. And this is what it's saying in verse 3. God's word spoke and created matter. This is what created the universe, not not a, a big bang, you know, thing that would weigh forty billion tons. Nothing was there. God created the physical and the seen universe out of what was invisible, and we understand this now because of saving faith, whereas the world cannot see it. So we walk by faith, but we're not uh, we're not blind. It's a faith that's so real to us, it's more real, again, than the very body you're in right now. Or well, we should believe this. We have the right to believe it, the power to do it. Now, many say they have faith. What about people in the Bible, like in John chapter 8? It says, to the Jews who believed in him. It says Jews believed in Jesus. It says they believed in him. 
The next thing you know, Jesus talks about himself and them being Abraham's descendants and who he was. And they started to accuse Jesus of being demonically possessed. He was demon-possessed. But it said that they believed. Then Jesus ends up telling them their father was the devil, and they lie like their father, so we know they're not saved. But the Bible says they believed. How could they not be saved if they believed? Because they didn't have saving faith. The Bible tells us that the demons believe and shudder. There are elect angels, the Bible tells us. There's elect angels, and some that are not elect, obviously, we know. There will people come to Jesus, he said, and will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles. We cast out demons in your name. They seemingly believed, but Jesus said what to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they didn't have saving faith. Um, the parable of the sower. According to many Christians that, that I know or, or grew up with, they would say that the man who received the word with joy it says the gospel was spread on the seeds on the ground. And it says, and the fruit came up or the, or the soil bore. It says they received the word with joy and believed for a while. That looks safe to me, right? They received the gospel with joy, believed, not saved. Why? It says because when the sun came out and the times of persecution came, they, they withered and died for they had no root. There was no saving faith. It says they believed. But men believe in their belief. You ever hear people say, my faith will get me through. Our faith by itself is powerless. You'll see what I'm saying. My faith, my flesh faith by itself has no power. It has to be combined with, synthesized like that beetle, the two chambers, synthesized with something powerfully above me, outside of me, supernatural, because otherwise... Jesus said that being born from above is not something you can do through going back into your mother's womb. It's something spiritual and supernatural. Although my faith is just a flesh faith, an earthly faith, but if it's combined with something outside of me to set off that spiritual power, something then can happen. And that's what saving faith is. It's outside of us. It comes to us from where? We'll see. From God combines with our free will, we do have a free will, to agree with what we, we want to agree with. He gives us the power to believe. Saving faith does its work through the Holy Spirit. You'll see more of this. Uh, so in this book right here, he makes a good point. Uh, this brother, you've heard this just as simply. In John, remember it says the Jews demanded from Jesus, who are you? I fear the Messiah, tell us plainly. He says... I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness of me, but you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. Now, this is interesting. Listen to what he says. Note in this passage what Jesus does not say to the Jews. He doesn't say, as many that I knew would say, he doesn't say, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. See? You know what I'm saying here. He doesn't say, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. He says, in other words, he gets the focus of Jesus' discussion with the Jews is the work he and the Father had planned in eternity. Jesus said, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Wow, that's a whole different story, isn't it? They are not part of his flock, therefore they cannot and do not believe. Although, wow, although they're commanded to believe, and that's, of course, a conundrum that... We can, we can look at just briefly, too. 
Faith must be mixed. It must be, it must come from, uh, a power come from without. And if you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, just back a few chapters in verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. And this is a good passage talking about saving faith. Hebrews 3, 12 said, this is the writer tying again to these brothers. He says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Be, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. None of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction hmm, firmly to the very end. As has been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They didn't have saving faith. Look at chapter 4. It goes on. Therefore, since the promise of his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you have fallen short of it. Do you have saving faith? He says here, fascinating passage. For we also had the good news, the gospel pre proclaimed to us as they did. They had the gospel proclaimed to them good news of God's love, unconditional love. They had the gospel proclaimed to them, he says, but the message they heard was of no value because, what does your version say, anybody? What does it say after that? They were not united by faith with those who listened. Okay, so they weren't united by faith. Anybody else, what does your version say? Right, combined, that's a little closer, probably the closest. Anybody else? Good? They did not share the faith yeah, I have that too. It's not the emphasis isn't really on the sharing with others. It, it is a it is a unity of family, the believers. That's true. But what it's saying here is, those people heard the gospel, were there, but they didn't combine it. It was not combined with faith. The message alone does not save them unless they have faith and it's combined with the power of God to believe. We'll see that. It wasn't synthesized, so to speak. The message was of no value because it was not combined with faith. The word there means agree with, uh, to join together, synthesize. They were not his. One of the proofs of saving faith, it says back here, it says you hold your conviction to the very end. Two, how would you say two, ev two evidences of saving faith would be? What's some evidence that you would say is saving faith, absolute? Okay, but it, permanently or consistently, right? Not just one, because these people received the word with joy and then dropped. Harrison? What's that? Say it, I'm sorry. Independence or dependence on God? Repentance. Repentance, thank you. Sorry, my hearing is... Repentance, very good. That's coming up, Mark. Perseverance. Right. But not so much perseverance that's supplied by the believer, but the, the, um, the perseverance that God... Right. Not, we can't hold on. We can't hold our faith. Exactly. That's why the song I think is so so true. It says, "He will hold us fast." Mm -hmm. so it's not us. It's him. Amen. And combine what you and Harrison just said. I think those are two powerful ones: perseverance, 
because because the those who walk away, the scripture gives us examples of people that left. Remember that they came in. That's how they they went up. They went with us. They left. Perseverance. And then what Harrison said, and I think this is so true too. There's a repentance unto salvation. We'll see which is granted by God. But there's a repentance for believers which is ongoing. Repentance changing in the mind. It's when every day you and I will say to the Lord, <laughs> some some of my most common words I say to the Lord is, "Forgive me, Lord." Forgive me, Father. Forgive me, Father. Forgive me, Father. All day long, I'm saying, forgive me, Father. And I feel terrible, but I know he forgives me, and I know I want to change. Repentance. The true believer has a sorrow over sin. Worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance unto fruit. The true Christian will have, will even at times, like the two sons. Once Jesus said, who did the will of his father? The son, I'll go, and he didn't. Or the son who says, I won't. Then after a while, he said, I will. I'll do it. He obeyed. Obedience is part of belief. Faith and obedience go together. Sorrow over sin, repentance, becoming more Christ-like over your life, even if it has stages and there are falls and there's highs and lows. That's all common to men. That's the normal Christian life, so to speak. But perseverance to the end. And those who, and even those who fall away, they might fall away for a short time and come back. But those who fall away, those who turn away completely, have no faith. Had no faith. There was no root and per, and repentance, constant day to day, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, as as we compare our lives to the Scripture, as we compare our lives to the life of Christ, we say, "I'm not doing that. I I I, I don't want to be like this. I I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me, Lord." And then we repent and we turn and we try again and again, and He helps us. So repentance by must be granted. Paul said in Second Timothy for salvation, he said to those who opposed him, he said, he said, pray and hope that the Lord might grant them repentance to see that they're in the snare of the wicked one they may turn. God has to grant repentance. It's a gift. It has to be given. Just like faith has to be given. Salvation has to be given. Everything's given. We can work nothing out in our power. Faith must be given. Matter of fact, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, one of your favorite chapters and mine, favorite verses as a, as a young Christian. Ephesians 2 talks about us before we are saved, and this is true. And you and I don't like to hear this, but it's true, and we'll acknowledge it. He says, as for you, Christian, he says, you were dead in transgressions and sins, amen, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. We did. And we even followed the ruler of this kingdom of the air and the spirit who is not working the children of those who are disobedient. The unbeliever is ruled by the spirit of, of the devil who has his sway and he's at work and those who are disobedient. He says, all of us, look at verse 3, all of us, me, you, every, all believers, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following his desires and thoughts. Of course we did, right? We were lost. We were elect, but we were unsaved. We didn't know him. We had no saving faith. He says, and, and he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I was, you were, we all were. Everyone is. He says, but, in verse 4, because of his, look where salvation comes from, alone. But because of his great love for us from eternity past, God, who is rich in mercy, salvation begins with mercy, the mercy of God. Nothing you did or I did. He's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, 
even when we were dead in tra transgressions, is by grace you've been saved. Made us alive with Christ. The word made us alive means you were brought into birth. And the word comes from the word we get genealogy from. Your origin was actually from, is of God as a believer. That's your origin, really. We're born into a sinful world with sin, but our origin is from God. He, he gives us birth. It really has to do with an idea of a woman even giving birth, the beginning of this birth. And he says that he made us alive. Anybody else? What does your version say? Made us alive, same thing? Okay, made us alive. Same thing. He birthed us gene genealogically. And and so here's what happens. He, he raises us up. He saves us, raises us up with Christ, verse 6, seats us with him in the heavenly realms. This is already done. Seven, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So salvation and faith itself to believe are both gifts. Salvation's a gift, and the faith to believe in salvation and to receive saving faith is all a gift from God. And he's done this from the beginning. We were known of him from the foundation, before the foundation of the world. And not just to save us, but to raise us up, seat us in the heavenlies, and willing and is looking forward to showing us uh, coming ages and comparable riches of his grace. All done for you already. Seth. Um, could you clarify your comment earlier about us having free will? Uh, because, like, obviously, a passage like this in Ephesians 2 right, right. speaks against that. And Very good. It makes that like, not valid. Not true. Right, like we're a ro robots automaton. Right. No, no, no. Like, this passage opposes the idea that we have free will. So I just want you to, if you could clarify your statement from earlier, because like, you said we have right. free will. Right. So. We, we must be, otherwise we'd be automatons. We would just be a machine. That's what the argument against um, predestination, foreknowledge, or uh, sovereignty of God comes into conflict, right? Is that if, if we, can't, we can't resist him. But man, but we as his people do believe in him. We do have a choice. We do choose to believe in him. But he has to grant us that ability too. He has to give us that ability to believe. How would you explain it? Go ahead. Or go ahead first, Todd. Well, there's a difference between the exercise of will and free will. Uh, you have to look at them as two different categories that still mm. blend. Um, the uh, freedom of the will is based on uh, the disposition of the individual person to a sinful will or a redeemed will. And therefore, he gives us a redeemed will when he saves us. And therefore, yes, it's free to now choose Christ over right, sin. Right, right compared to choosing sin without Christ. Right. But there is a responsibility by man right. to man from God to exercise will. You right. see, with Cain. Right. You know, sin is crouching at your door, it's desires for you, and you must master it. He's talking to an unsaved person and never gets saved. Right. It's, it's taught that, regen at least this is what Reformed teachers teach, is that regeneration begins with God. Right. We are dead. Regeneration begins with the Holy Spirit. Helping us, aiding us, enlivening us to believe. What would you say, Seth? You want to add on to that? Yeah, just um, free will. Just use the statement that we have free will. And right. It, it, right, right. Well, the point. A lot of problems. Exactly. Well, the point. Right. The point I'm trying to make is is what you just. It was what you said previous to that. 
is to not act like save, saving faith just takes us without any acknowledgement of us. That just grabs us and, you know, it's, it's not like God is a, a heartless machine. But we, we have a will. We can agree with that. Harrison? You guys are good. Very good. I didn't know we were going to get into that detail. Thank you. Mark? Well, I, I'm just reminded I had a conversation with somebody at work last week. He was saying, talk about free will. And I said, you don't have free will. Everything, everything is tainted by sin. So right. you, you can't say that you have free will. Right. Uh, we had free will in, in uh, you know, Adam and Eve did. They, had, they, were, they were without sin in the garden. But since then, it, our, our will has always been Right. Wow. Amen. Very good. The, the thing is, though, is that the Armenians always like to bring up the uh, the what what is the natural consequence or in the logical way of thinking that well, then you are an automaton because right. God did it all. Exactly. All of a sudden, it just automatically because mm-hmm. God's forcing you to do it, and that's not the case. He gives you the capacity to exercise your will in agreement with God. Exactly. Exactly. In relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit within right. you as a gift that keeps on giving right right and the point i'm trying to make here is that we our will alone is powerless of itself it must be combined we have a will to believe but that of itself has not supernatural power it must be enjoined with saving and that's what i'm saying we're really just touching the we're trying to explain things that theologians can't explain i'm just throwing this out here like crazy but explaining how salvation works not the easiest thing in the world to do. And explaining how God or, ordains salvation. These are not light subjects we're just delving into. So I thought it would be fun if we talk, <laughs> if, if we talk about saving faith. That's a real simple subject, right? Are you implying you just got in trouble? Is that what you're implying? No, I actually got in, I got in trouble back when uh, they, we were going to do a, uh, the devotion. And uh, Randy asked me, said, oh, so you got five minutes. Can you talk about faith? I said, sure, five minutes. <laughs> How about God? Five minutes. I got it. Right? No, I'm ready. We're picking on him here. Faith, hope, and love, right? So I had five minutes to talk about faith. I'm like, you're kidding me. I got five minutes to talk about faith? And I did it, right? Sort of. So what I'm doing now is continuing that impossible task of explaining saving faith. We're at least looking at it, and, and I'm glad you're bringing in some things that are some of the parameters of it. Let's, that's good. All right, so he made us alive. And now if we go back to Galatians, a book back before Ephesians, Galatians chapter 3, 21, maybe, maybe some of these things will be helped too as we read. Or maybe there'll be more cans of worms open, which is fine. So Paul is talking to the Galatians about the law. You know, they want to go back to works also, kind of, like the Hebrew Christian, Jewish Christians were tempted. So let's just work with 321. And again, we're not going to talk about the law. We don't have time for all that. These are just brief things we're checking. In 321, Paul says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would have certainly come by the law. So the law alone wasn't enough. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Now, these are fascinating verses, and I don't know how they work, but just listen to how fascinating they are. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, see how we're talking, look at the words given here. 
that faith, it says here, and it's interesting, it says in the second part of verse 22, being given through faith, and the actual language can say faith from Jesus Christ, faith of, it's really a possessive. So it's hard to translate that. But it's not really saying faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what the actual language is saying. It's not saying faith in. It's saying the faith of, the faith of Christ we have, maybe. Faith from Christ, it's hard to, it's hard to translate it. But it's saying something about a possession of this faith. That's what it's referring to. It's this promise was given through faith from or the faith of, the faith from Christ, however you want to say it, might be given to those who believe. Now, that's what Tom was just saying. We, we begin, and he gives us the power to agree. Is there a, a synthesizing here? Todd? Well, when someone gives us a gift, it's now, now ours, not theirs. And therefore, we own it. Ah. Or, or we join with them in it. Oh, so go ahead. faith is, is that which we now own and are responsible for. Right. Having been given to us by the grace of God. And somehow it's equal to God's, I won't say his faith, but equal to him in some respect, right? Well, yeah, think of the how many times Jesus said to those who were healed, your faith has made you well. Okay. Your faith. Yep. You own it. Mm-hmm. It's your faith. It has to be a powerful faith. It's not faith. this thing that where man's will is... Um, right, uh, wishing it. Neglected or... Uh, unuseful right. for the will of God right, in right. our life and salvation is now become our faith right. because it was a gift now that is ours. And it must be a supernatural faith. It can't be like, I believe, you know, somebody goes, I believe it's going to work. You know, well, our belief means nothing, really. Our belief is powerless, Mark. But it's faith in, in what God has said he, he will do. Right. And when we say we believe in Christ, it's faith in him. Right. Yeah, but it's also from him, that faith. You're right, faith and what he's done, true. But it has something to do with God himself channeling that faith to us somehow. Well, look at verse 23. It gets more technical. Before the coming of this faith. Well, now it's separating it into a thing, an object, this faith. Or some versions say, before faith came. Well, where was faith before? Before this faith. What's this faith? Maybe saving faith. Somebody goes, now Now here's a problem I'll bring up myself that you might be asking in a minute. Before this faith came, this faith, the promise of this faith, the faith from God, the faith from Jesus Christ, okay, maybe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the, the faith that was to come, the faith that was to come. This faith is separate somehow. The faith from God, the faith from Christ, faith of Christ, somehow, was to come and would be revealed. It says, would be revealed. It wasn't there before somehow, or didn't exist in its, the way it exists now. So then my question as I studied this was this. Well, how did people in the Old Testament get saved then? If this saving faith is unique to the coming of Christ, well, we know that people, some in the Old Testament were truly saved. We know that. How is this faith different from the Old Testament? That was my question I had. It seems to be so distinct and so unique. This faith of the new covenant of Christ coming, this faith, before the coming of this faith, we were held under the law, the Old Testament. 
the old covenant, locked up until the faith that was to come, like it's a separate entity. It's all I can tell you from what I could gather. And again, we're opening up things which theologians can't understand, really. Uh, no one could explain that to us succinctly right now, I doubt. The Old Testament, how are they saved? By faith. we got to agree with that, right? It says it. So faith somehow still was ordained from God to believe. But in the New Covenant, what's different about New Covenant versus the Old Covenant? Todd? Well, first off, they had the same faith. Right. Paul articulates the faith of Abraham believing in the Father. Right, right. Um, so it's the same saving faith, the means of, of, of salvation through faith. Uh, but the, uh, the faith has uh, uh, a messianic object of the Old Covenant, but a a fulfilled messianic mm-hmm. object in the new. That's one thing that's different. True. In other words, we now look in hindsight of the of, of the fulfillment right. of this faith. Uh, but also, I in my and I'm speculating here. I haven't thought about it this deep on the faith level. But <laughs> uh, if you think of it, Jesus regularly spoke of the Holy Spirit to come. Amen. And and to who? All so as the third person of the Trinity exactly. resides and lives in you, right. which he only did in specific persons right. of the Old Covenant, um, this faith is enlivened even more right. under the New Covenant. Right. And therefore, this is a faith that can, I, be, I, I believe, referred to as a not so much a different faith, but a more powerful faith. Right. An expansion of some sort. Just like the New Covenant itself. Remember Joel said, the prophet Joel said, the Spirit shall be poured out. Right? And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, right? So this faith coming, I would say, from what I'm getting, and what I see in it a little bit, is that the, the before in the Old Testament, it's very limited to prophets. Remember the Holy Spirit was given to who? Kings, prophets, anointed peoples. Not, not in, in a sense to the Because not all Israel is Israel, right? As a matter of fact, that's what... Um, that's a, that's what amazing thing that Paul that Paul quotes in First Corinthians ten. What about the ancient Jews? Listen to this. What it says about them. He says all were under the same cloud. They're all benefits of the cloud. He says all were baptized into Moses. Well, they're all believers then. Nope. All were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? They joined with Moses's ministry. They joined with the nation of Israel. They were there. It says they drank the same spiritual drink. They ate the same spiritual food. They were not saved. Why? It says, God was not pleased with them. Many of them, most of them fell in the desert. Although they had all those things available. Because it was not mixed with, combined with, faith. Now, did they see the works? Of course they did. But did they have saving faith? No. Something is distinct about the power of the faith that God gives. Not that man alone has. But it must be combined and makes us alive. Uh, that's why um, Jesus said in John six forty four, you, and this was to his disciples, by the way. It wasn't to to just the general, the priests and those that were opposing him. They questioned Jesus and they said, "This is a hard saying. This is hard to accept." And Jesus said to his disciples, "Now these were people that were with him, right? So you figure they're all believers, but no." He said, you cannot come to me, right? Famous verses, John 6.44 and and 6.65. He says, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. He must give you the ability. Remember that? 
supernatural ability. Then he said another time as they were ready to leave and they left, he said, that is why I said to you, you cannot come to me unless it's given you, granted, given by the Father. Even their leaving wasn't their choice. They're leaving, Jesus said. Don't think you're leaving me, rejecting me. You're leaving because my Father has not enabled you to come. See the control he has, like he said about the to the Jews when he said, you're not my flock? It's the same thing. The power of God. They could not come. And he said, you cannot come. And, and, and again, the church was the fathers first. I've been seeing that lately. It's really astounding. The church was God the fathers. You know that? And it says he gave them. Jesus said, they were yours, they, us, from eternity past, a bride. See? He gave the bride to his son. That's what a father does. He gave a dowry. Jesus, the, the, the groom pays a dowry to the father. What's the dowry of Christ? His blood for the bride. See the fascinating picture? I, I, I kiddingly say the entire history of our earth is all about a father finding a bride for his son. It really is, kind of. And I, don't, I say that with respect. But the father had the church... And he gave them to the son. The son purchases the church with his blood, it says. So this is all of him. So he has the right and the authority to choose his bride, like you did. And the world doesn't like that. The world thinks in terms of the unsaved world. They think in terms of the way they think. Their eyes aren't open to see the way God thinks. And, and we'll close with that. And that comes through the Spirit of, of God, which is given now to all believers. And this faith now is including the, brother, the, the church and the family of God. Jesus said about those born again, he said, As the wind goes, the wind comes and the wind goes, you don't know where it came or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Again, born of yourself, born of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit gives all these things. Matter of fact, if you go to 2 Corinthians 4, and we're getting ready to close up, 2 Corinthians 4, another um, translation, uh, interesting thing. 2 Corinthians 4, verse... Actually, you know what? As you're going there, first go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 15. Talking about the Holy Spirit now. And in, in his, in his um, part in the salvation and understanding. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, he says, However it is written, what I know I have seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. Now, that just means we can't understand it. He says, The things that God has prepared for those who love him, it says, verse 10, These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The unbeliever cannot know the things that God prepares because they don't know him. He says in verse in verse 10, continuing, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Notice what he said in verse 12. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now we can comprehend. We can see the invisible because we see, we see through the physical the invisible truths. In verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, 
explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. We start to understand spiritual truths, whereas the world wouldn't really understand it. In their wisdom, they understand some basic things, but they can't understand these things we're talking about. It tells us that. He says in verse 14, the person 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. <laughs> How are you looked today on by the world? Like a fool? Oh, wow, that matches the Bible. Isn't that interesting? He said that they cannot understand them. They can't receive it. They can't know what you're telling them until saving faith or revelation from the Holy Spirit is given. He says they cannot understand. They're discerned only through the Spirit or... Another version or translation would say they are spiritually discerned, which means there's two parts, two halves. It's almost like the beetle that has two parts in its abdomen. They can't join. What if they never joined? If they cannot mix together, nothing happens. So the unsaved man, the natural man, is like two halves with a dist, and they can't meet. They just can't meet. They're split apart. He says, and they, they discern only through the Spirit, verse 15. Now listen to this. This is not arrogance for the Christian, but listen to what it says. The person with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. Now, we can't go around arrogantly say to people, I have the Spirit, and I make judgments about all things. And by the way, you have, you have no right to judge me. But you could say that, technically, because it's true. Through the Holy Spirit, you make judgments of all things, although you're learning, like me. We're not, we don't know all things, like Christ, but we're being taught things that are accumulating in us, learning more and more about the personality of God, His will, His love, deeper and deeper. It's, it's abiding in us and building us up to become like him and to be ready to enter his kingdom, which he has ordained for us. But he says, but we're not, we're not subject to earthly judgments. They can't know, they don't know, and they have no power to judge us. Who has known the mind of the Lord? He goes, we have the mind of Christ. Now, some would say, I don't have the mind of Christ. But, but you have a mind like Christ, a mind given from Christ, from the Holy Spirit, which is able to see things now differently because you're born again. Because you're born from above. The world does not have the mind of Christ. Cannot be instructed by Christ. We can. Because now we see through a glass darkly. But we still see. It was before blackest night. Nothing. We were dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians says. But now we've been made alive. Now back to 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to end with this passage. 2 Corinthians 4. What God has done, amen? You see it more and more, the beauty of what he's done. And it's all a gift. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul hammers at home by talking about the gospel not being received. He says in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded their eyes. Now, they're still responsible and accountable. But this world is his, so to speak. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. He is. The Bible says he's the prince and power of the air. It says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one in John. It means a nest. It means Satan has 
the world like a bird, like a nest, and he rocks it. It's in his control. It's in his sway. A bird, they're in his nest. He says, and they have been blinded. Now, that doesn't mean all, but God will call his people out that he has chosen. There'll be not one lost, Jesus said. All the Father has given me. Again, they're from the Father. We were his, and he gave them to his son. He gave us to his son as the bride. None shall be lost except the son of perdition, so that scriptures might be fulfilled. He has not lost one, but kept us all safe. So notice, Satan blinds the unbeliever, but the Spirit takes away the veil in the people of God. Right? Satan blinds, the Spirit gives light. The Holy Spirit gives. And in verse 13, if you go down to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13, uh, is that right? Oh, maybe it's verse. Let me see. Oh, yeah, 4.13. He says, it is written... I believe, therefore, I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Now, it's interesting what that translation actually says in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, some translations would say the spirit-given faith. That's what it says. Spirit-given faith. Where's our faith coming from? Spirit of God. Since we have spirit-given faith. We are able to believe. Saving faith, so to speak. We are able to believe. And then to close, in in 2 Corinthians 4, we're going to read from, um, actually, verse 14 to the end. This is how we'll end. Listen to how beautiful it ends up and where our minds should be. It started with seeing things that are invisible, right? That's where we started. We're going to end there. It says in verse 14, Because we know that the one who raised us, who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people, now as opposed to the unbelievers, it is reaching more and more of his people and will, may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And then verse 16, Therefore, and this is the hope of us all, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Amen? (laughs) Outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, and that by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in us. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. See, See the contrast? Light and momentary trouble. 80 years of your life is a, is a vapor. Versus an eternal glory that is so heavy it far outweighs your troubles that you ever had. That glory will be forever and ever that you'll be residing in with the Lord. It far outweighs them all. So he says in verse 18, So what should we do as Christians? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Not that we're believing in the dark. We know it's true. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Now, grasp that reality. What would the world say to that? Are you nuts? What is seen is temporary and what I can't see is forever? Are you serious? Only the person with the Spirit of God can agree with that. Yes. What is seen is temporary. I have proof of it right here. This. <laughs> this vehicle that, I, that my spirit travels in, it's, it's getting older, for crying out loud. And I don't like it. And I don't have a choice. My vehicle 
that houses my spirit is is getting is dying and it's going to end and that's okay if you know him because what is unseen we don't need proof we have proof it's more real than than the ground I'm walking on but we cannot see it with these eyes but we see it with the spirit eyes of that have spirit faith that has been given us by the holy spirit this is what saving faith is and that's why the hebrew writer says do you have saving faith you're going back to that don't you know that is that is vanity that is wasted have you even known saving faith do you know him that's a question we have for ourselves today anybody want to add as we close sure it didn't raise any questions right <laughs> we only just touched things which uh men with angels fear it was it how's that go they fear to walk and tread but i threw it out go ahead darling could you just repeat that please what's that Everything? <laughs> so the saving faith now, at least we've tasted a little bit of it, and who can explain it? And I dare not say that I understand the mind of God at all. But I'm getting little tidbits as I go along. I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, this goes more than this goes on and on. And it's coming. Talk. It's really important. What we know is he, he knows it. He knows all about it. And he's taking care of it. Anybody else before we close in a prayer? Rob? Kind of following up on Todd's comment about faith is a gift from God. And, and from a, a legal point of view, a gift, to have a completed gift, you need three things. You need a donative intent, you need a transfer, and you need a receipt. And with God giving us faith, it is the love, the donative intent, the transfer, and we receive it. Then it becomes our faith. Who are acting by our faith, but it's God's faith too. Right. And that actually has made it a, a good clarifying function. Oh, amen. It's God's it's gift. Right? It's God's gift of faith, but it's now our faith. It's the reason why we're Same responsible faith. and kind of right. Amen. Amen. Very good. Randy, would you close us in a prayer? Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Barry.